Whether people realise it or not, I think almost all human beings long for spiritual power of some sort. We long for the power of the spiritual realm to be displayed in our life, particularly when things go bad. You see it when we face struggles that you see it when people face struggles that they know they can't face on their own. It might be a diagnosis that threatens their life or the life of someone near them that they love, and they pray for healing. They might not have prayed for years, but now they pray. And they pray for some power outside to intervene and help them through it or, more importantly, change the situation. That's the sort of prayer that they pray. During the fires of the new year, I heard a number of stories of people who just, days before the fire hit, they were devout secularists, if there is such a thing. No belief in God, but all of a sudden the fire's coming and they find themselves praying. Praying that some spiritual power would intervene change the winds, spare them from this onslaught. I've seen many a non-religious student suddenly seek help from above in the face of a looming exam. Maybe you felt like that when you pray for mercy, not justice, at a time like that. Prayers for leniency and clarity of thoughts and release from anxiety. Most religions promise this sort of spiritual power. It might be the Buddhist prayer wheels, the Buddhist temples, or the, or the spiritual disciplines and, and worship of the Hindus and the Buddhists as well, the offerings of, the, uh, of people to the spirits of the ancestors seeking spiritual power in time of need. It might be saints of old and prayers to them in all sorts of different ways, seeking the same thing, seeking the power of the spiritual over our world, over our lives, to bring change and, and hope in the face of the perils and struggles and disasters of life. Do you long for spiritual power to be displayed in your life, in your world, in your experience? I hope you do. What would it look like for God to display such power? We all long to see spiritual power at work in some way, but, but how, do we, how do we access that? What does it mean to believe in a powerful, working God in a world that's so broken? In 1 Samuel 4 to 7, we see a God who is profoundly powerful, who acts, who speaks, who saves, who judges. And as we meet him, we need to consider what it means to relate with such a great and awesome and mighty God. And that's what's before us tonight. These chapters are full of action. And we've only got so much time to go through them. So let me strongly encourage you, if you haven't already sat down and read through chapters 4 to 7, in one sitting, let me encourage you to do that when you go home tonight, maybe tomorrow sometime, and see the wonder of God's work through these chapters. In fact, as this series goes on, the sections are going to become a bit larger at times. Read ahead. Make some time this week to read the chapters coming up next week. The chapters are on your outline. You can see it at the end there, what we're doing next week. Read through those in one sitting in preparation to hear God's word on Sunday. And so tonight, chapter four, the, uh, sorry, chapter, yeah, chapter four, uh, the action begins with two ancient battle lines being drawn up. The Philistines, the ancient enemies of God's people, the Israelites, have gone out to meet Israel in battle. Now, we don't get a lot of detail as this battle unfolds. We're just basically told the end result. And we're told that Israel is soundly defeated. 4,000 men die in battle that day. And, and the elders gather together and raise the question, why? 
Why did we lose? Now, that's a good question to ask when we just lost 4,000 men on the battlefield, isn't it? Of course you're going to ask that question. But have a look at the reason they ask it. Have a look at the way that they ask it. It's not just, oh, geez, because the Philistines were so strong. 4 verse 3. Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? These elders get something right about their relationship with God and how it works. He promised to be with them in battle. He said he would again and again before they entered into the promised land, that they would be, he would be with them in battle. And he was with them in battle as they lay conquest of the land of Canaan in the days of Joshua, and since then again and again at different times. And so they understand that the reason that they were defeated wasn't because the Philistines were so clever or so powerful, but because God had brought the defeat. God had abandoned them. They get that. Good so far from the elders of Israel, but then it starts to go south. And in the rest of their response to this tragedy, we begin to see what's wrong with Israel at, the time, at this time in their history. So what should their response be to this recognition that God has abandoned them on the battlefield? Well, we know from chapter 3 that Samuel is already recognised as a prophet at this time, a prophet of God who speaks God's word. And so, why don't they go and... Maybe it's a good idea to go and ask him maybe what they should do. But no, 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 let's not do that. Let's not worry Samuel. Have a look at what they do. Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, what's the ark? The ark, if you're not sure, if you haven't heard of it before, the ark is a box, basically, that held the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. It was, the, it was to be the symbol of God's very presence with his people in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. A symbol of this God who saved them out of the hands of the Egyptians and brought them through powerful signs and wonders to himself at Mount Sinai and gave them his good word there. And it's his good word in that box, the symbol of his presence. So let me ask you this, as they bring this ark with the priests into the battle line, how are they treating the ark? How do they understand what it is? For them, really, it's a lucky charm, isn't it? That's how they're treating this ark. They think that if they've got this box with them, then that guarantees their success, their victory. The power of God as they see it is present physically in this box. And they bring that box, they bring God, they guarantee the win. They feel that they've acknowledged God by simply bringing this box along. And that that will be enough to twist God's arm so that they can get from God what they want, victory against the Philistines. It's a very superstitious way to relate with God, isn't it? Token response to guarantee his faith. Now, why did they treat God like that? Well, because that's how the nations treat their gods. All the nations around them do that and with their idols. A token response to guarantee favour. So, let's see how this works for Israel to treat the God who saved them from Egypt like that. What happens? Well, the Israelites are pumped. They're so sure of victory, bringing the ark in, that they give out the victory shout and the victory dance even before they've gone into battle. And the Philistines hear it and they're scared. Verse 8. Woe to us! Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. They, they rev each other up. And so the battle starts and to Israel's great surprise and utter dismay, they are completely Defeated, routed, chased, destroyed. 
30,000 men died on the battlefield. 30,000 men. And the rest of them run away as fast as they can and try and hide where they can. And the ark of God is captured. And then just as God promised through Samuel just a couple of chapters ago, the two sons of Eli, the two priests, Hophni and Phinehas, his two sons die on a single day, just like Samuel said. Just like God said through his prophet Samuel. And then in the rest of chapter 4, this utter tragedy just continues to get worse. There's poor old Eli waiting in Shiloh where the tabernacle was set up, waiting anxiously, concerned, worried about what's going to happen to the Ark of the Covenant, dreading the news of what might happen. And then the news comes with a messenger about the defeat of the Israelites at the hand of the Philistines and the death of his two boys and the capture of the Ark. And he literally falls off his seat backwards, cracks his neck and dies. And dies full of dread and horror at what he's just heard. But the drama hasn't finished. The drama still unfolds like a Shakespearean tragedy. We meet the wife of Phineas. She's also waiting to hear the news of this battle. And her husband and the Ark of God Now she's visibly pregnant. She's in the last weeks of her pregnancy, waiting for this child of hers and Phineas's to arrive. But then she gets the news of her father-in-law, of the father of her unborn child, and of the ark. And she immediately goes into shock labour. The child is born and born healthy, but Phineas's wife tragically dies as a result of giving birth. And so... This poor newborn child. I mean, think about what's going on there. This child is born on the day that his father died, on the day that his grandfather died, on the day that his mother died, on the day even more so that the ark of God has been captured. It's a terrible tragedy when you think about this poor boy. And this terrible tragedy is captured in the final words of this poor woman in travail. Verse 21, she named the boy Ichabod. If you look at your footnote, you'll see Ichabod means no glory. And she continues, she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. It's a profound thing that she says. This, she sees this tragic child as actually an embodiment of the nation. Represents the nation. As this child is born into hopelessness and despair, so Israel is born into a time of hopelessness and despair. This newborn child's family was once the glory of Israel, serving in the temple itself. Now that glory has disappeared into curse, and so too is the hope of Israel. It's a profoundly dark moment for this boy. It's a profoundly dark moment for Israel. The glory of God, sorry, the glory of Israel has indeed departed. Not so much because the ark of God has left the land. No, 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 because ultimately Yahweh has abandoned his people, left them, judged them, rejected them. God will not tolerate being treated like a lucky charm, like a dumb, mute, powerless idol. And Israel needs to learn that. And that's why this has happened. 
And it's a lesson that the Philistines are about to learn as well. So before the battle, the Philistines, let's look at them. They were afraid of this God who reduced Egypt to a blubbering mess. But now, now they've won. They have defeated Yahweh. That's how they see it. They've defeated Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. Or to put it more accurately, they think, Dagon, their God, has defeated Yahweh. That's how they saw things in those days. When they went out on the battlefield, it wasn't just them fighting their enemies. It was their God facing, uh, facing the enemy's God in the spiritual world, if you want to put it like that. That's what they thought as they went to battle with another nation. What happens in the battlefield is a reflection of spiritual warfare. And that's why once they captured the Ark of Yahweh, they placed it in the temple of their god Dagon, beside the idol of Dagon. It's a symbol of the subjection of this god Yahweh to our god. That's how they see it. But God quickly dispels that idea. The next morning, the priests of Dagon enter the temple. They find Dagon fallen unceremoniously on the floor, face down. And this poor, stupid idol is so silly, he can't even get itself back up again. And so they've got to pick it up and put it back on his pedestal. They go about their business that day. The next morning, what happens? They wake up and find an even greater horror. Dagon has not only fallen to the ground, he's been beheaded and de-handed. Powerless, useless piece of metal it is. That's all it is. But God is not. God will not be treated like an idol. And he makes it crystal clear. But he's going to make it crystal clear even more so to the, to the Philistines. Because it's not just the idol of Dagon that's in God's sights, it's also the people. The people of the city of Ashdod begin to break out in tumors and they just start dying. The lords of the Philistines thought they'd defeated Yahweh, but, but Yahweh is in their midst and they find themselves under attack. Cursed, judged, dying, defeated at the hand of Yahweh. They hold a meeting, the lords of the Philistines, and decide to send the Ark of Yahweh 50 kilometres to the south. Let's send it to Gath and see what happens there. Don't know how the people of Gath felt like that. Feel about that. But anyway, what happened? Well, once again, God's hand is heavy against the people of Gath, and tumours break out among the people, and many begin to die. So the people of Gath think, well, let's get this out of here, and they shift it up north again, this time to Ekron. And the people of Ekron, they've heard what's going on. No way they're having the Ark of the Covenant in their city. They stop it outside and say, "Uh uh-uh, no further, because we know what's going to happen here. They stop the parade of the Ark before it has time to bring ruin and death, before Yahweh has time to bring ruin and death. Do you remember what the Philistines were saying before they went into battle? What they were afraid of? They were afraid of this God who reduced Egypt to ruins through plague and curse. Well, guess what? Their fears have been realised. That's exactly what's going on. God's glory is being revealed in the lives of the Philistines. The glory departed Israel and the glory of God has come to Ashdod and to Gath. The glory of God revealed in devastating and dread-inducing judgment. That's what's happening here. The lesson that the Israelites needed to learn. The Philistines have learned it too. God will not be treated like an idol. He will not be trifled with you. He will judge his enemies, those who treat him like this. And so a crisis meeting of the Lord of the Philistines is held in chapter 6, and these lords of the Philistines, they consult their priests and the diviners about what should we do about this crisis. We've been defeated by Yahweh. They want to know what they should do. In the end, they decide to take the ark back with a guilt offering, and it's a bit of a hilarious guilt offering when you think about it, isn't it? Golden tumors. 
Like, I wonder which of the Lord of the Philistines sort of posed for them so they could take this image of this tumour and turn it into gold. It's just a bit weird, isn't it? But not just that, there's also copies of mice. And so there we see that God's judgment on the Philistines wasn't just the tumours, there was a plague of mice that went with it as well. Wherever the ark went, there were these mice as well. And who knows what else as God judged the Philistines. And so they decide to send the ark back. But they can't just wheel the ark into Israel with the offering. They decide not to do that. The priests and and diviners, they devise a plan to be certain that what's been going on within the Philistine cities is actually from the hand of God and not just pure chance. And so they place the ark on a cart of wood and hitch that cart up to cows that have been suckling their calves. And cows that have actually never been taught to pull a load. And so they... They place this cart and the cows on the road toward Israel. Now, what should happen is either the cows just don't have a clue what to do. If they're going to go anywhere, they're going to go back to their calves, but they don't. They walk along the road to Israel, protesting all the way, lowing all the way. Nothing less than the hand of God. I'm sure the Philistines were a bit gobsmacked at that, or maybe they weren't, considering what had just happened to them. But I think the Israelites were pretty gobsmacked when they saw this parade of the ark coming with a noisy load of protesting cows as the ark comes back into the land. It is nothing short than the hand of God. But as the ark returns to Israel, what we see is that Israel still haven't learnt. They haven't learnt the lesson the Philistines have just learnt. The people of Beth Shemesh look like they begin to respond rightly. They, they get the Levites to take the ark down. They make a sacrifice of the cows as a burnt offering. Overjoyed to see the ark, the presence of Yahweh, return to Israel. But then we see the heart of the problem for Israel displayed again. Their heart of sin that seems determined to treat God like an idol. Some of the people of Beth Shemesh, they can't help themselves. They, they open up the ark. Like as if they haven't seen um, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, surely you wouldn't do that. But they did it. And what happens? Seventy die. And how do they respond to that event? They respond, notice, just like the Philistines did when they started dying. Chapter 6, verse 20. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And then they send this ark, the God of Yahweh, as they see it, they send this ark out of their presence, just like the Philistines did. They're too afraid. Deeply afraid. And they should be afraid, shouldn't they? Because God will not be treated like an idol. And they ask this vitally important question. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord? God is frighteningly powerful. He will not stand being treated like a lucky charm. He can. He will judge those who fail to respond rightly to him as he deserves. Whether they be Philistines or Israelites, his people or not. So before we look into God's great salvation and the right way to respond to this great and awesome God, before we move on to chapter 7, we need to ask ourselves, could we be in danger of treating God like the Israelites and the Philistines do? Like a lucky charm, like an idol. As we saw right at the start, most religions are about obtaining spiritual power to help us in life, to make my life better, to obtain what we long for in this life. Serenity and happiness and wealth and success. Idolatry certainly works like that. You know, you give the spiritual idols, whatever it is, the things that they ask for, and they'll give me what I want. That's how idolatry works. And sadly, Christianity can often be presented like that. God wants what's best for you. 
Come to church, give at church, and he will give you healing and wealth and happiness and success. How's that any different to what we see in Israel in chapters 4 to 6 and what we see in the Philistines? It's just idolatry. That's not the God of the Bible. That's a very dangerous way to relate with God, frankly, because he will not be treated like an idol. But it doesn't need to be that crass. I think we can all fall into this trap. We can go to church, we can read the Bible, pray to God, try and be the best person we can, and we feel like if we do that, then we feel like God owes me. Deep down, is that how we feel religion works? Christianity works when, it, when push comes to shove. We can see this tendency deep down when suffering hits us hard and fast. When that happens to us or those dear to us, we begin to ask, what have I done to deserve this? Why me, God? And so I think with those questions, deep down is this thought, God, you owe me. Isn't that just the same as the Israelites? Isn't treating God like Israel treated God? That's a dangerous way to relate to him. If you don't yet trust in Jesus, it's great that you're here. And it's great to come under the word and hear what God says. Maybe this idea of religion is, you know, that it's about getting from God what we want, is what you thought religions were like doing religious things to get God on your side. If that's the way that you think of religion and Christianity, then I want to dispel that illusion. Biblical Christianity is not like that. That's not how it works. The God of the Bible is not like that. He won't be treated like that. Really, to treat God in this way is to put ourselves at the centre, as if God is there for me and my happiness and success and health. I just need to work out how I can get God on my side. It's such an upside-down way of thinking about God, isn't it, when you think about it? God's not so much there for me, with me at the centre. We are there for him. We are here for him. He must be at the centre. He is God, not me. And we need to relate with him on his terms, not ours. And we see what it takes to relate with God on his terms in chapter 7. So in chapter 7... Samuel enters the story again after being absent for three chapters. We haven't seen him since chapter 3. But now he comes in. Through him God speaks. The people of Israel are gathered at Kiriath-Jerim. The ark is there at that time. And Samuel arrives and addresses the people of God. Chapter 7, verse 3. If you are returning to Yahweh with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to Yahweh and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And that's what Israel do. This is a high point in Israel's history. They repent. They throw away their idols. They seek God and God alone. They hear the word of God from the mouth of the prophet. And they respond to him with repentance and faith. And then Samuel assembles Israel at Mizpah. They fast. They pour out water in their hearts to God. They confess their sins to him. Finally, Israel get it. It's not all about them. The biggest thing they need is forgiveness. And they ask for it. Relationship with God is broken. And they do what God says to get it right. And so their mediator, Samuel, intercedes on their behalf and they're forgiven. Then they prepare for war with their enemies, the Philistines. They ask Samuel to keep praying. God brings them victory, a great salvation. 
Verse 9, Then Samuel took a suckling lamb, offered it up as a whole burnt offering to Yahweh. He cried out to Yahweh on Israel's behalf, and Yahweh answered him. Just think about how our relationships work one to another. If, if you have deeply offended someone, deeply hurt and betrayed them, who gets to decide how to put things right? The person who's been hurt. Not the person who's done the hurting. Now, if you've hurt someone, you can't say, oh, here's a block of chocolate, hope we can be friends. It doesn't work, does it? Such an approach to someone shows that you haven't really understood what's happened, the offence. It just pastes you over, pretend it doesn't matter. Now, we know that this is how it works one to another. Well, guess what? This is how it works with God too. It's no different. It shouldn't surprise us. We have deeply, deeply offended God through our indifference, through treating him like a, like a lucky charm, through rejecting him as the king of our world, he's the one who decides how things get right, not us. He, as God, determines how we should relate to him. And the astounding thing is in Christianity, not only does he decide how to get things right, he does it on our behalf as a great act of mercy and then offers salvation. What an amazing God. And we, we see this in this passage. Salvation for Israel came when? When they acknowledged their guilt, that their relationship with God was broken, they heard the word of God through the prophet Samuel, and they asked God's chosen mediator to intercede for them, to put things right. That's exactly how it works for us now, isn't it? It's no different. We are lost in our ignorance of God and Christ, but in Christ he has revealed himself. He's spoken for his final word, his son how we can get our relationship with him put right. What brings us peace with God is not our own power and ingenuity or twisting God's arm to get what we want from him through ritual or tokens of power. No, true relationship with God is established by his representative and through his word. That's how. The key to responding rightly to this God is to listen to his word and accept his way of making things right through the death of his son on the cross to appease his anger at us. That's the only way things can be put right. And you see that in the New Testament in passages like this, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and people, the man Jesus Christ, he gave himself as a ransom for all people. So if you're here tonight and you haven't done this yet, you haven't got right with God yet, you haven't done business with him, sought forgiveness. Don't put it off. Don't try and work out a way for you to get God on your side. It doesn't work like that. It can't work like that. Listen to his word in Jesus. See what great love and power he has shown in sending his son to die for him. Accept the offer of forgiveness and find the wonder of relationship with God on his terms. Let me encourage you to do that. And for those of us who have accepted this offer, what we have is the wonder of restored relationship with God. Think about the Philistines. They were afraid of the presence of God. They were afraid of the presence of Yahweh. And they set the ark from city to city to city because they, they couldn't bear to be in his presence. The ark arrives back with the Israelites at Beth Shemesh and they're too frightened as well. And they send a, 
ark away. And they ask in 6 verse 20, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And the answer to that question is no one can. None of us can stand in God's presence. But Jesus can. And Jesus did. And Jesus is. And those who trust in him. Have a look at that, just in the light of what we've seen in 1 Samuel. Have a look at the wonder of these words from Hebrews. The astounding nature of what God's done for us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through his through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. What a stunning thing to be able to enter confidently into God's presence, washed by the blood of Jesus. What a great blessing. In the narrative of 1 Samuel 4-7, you know what, we can be like the Israelites at the end of chapter 7, in right relationship with God, forgiven by him, turned from idols to serve the true and living God, saved by the mediating work of God's chosen representative. That's where we stand in that story, if we put our trust in Jesus. It's a great place to be in relationship with God. We should never take it for granted. What an awesome and frightening God. What a great thing to be welcoming in his presence. And so those of us who have been saved by such a great and powerful God, let us make sure that we don't go back to treating him like a lucky charm. Let's not do that. Thinking that he's there to serve me as if God owes me something. God doesn't owe us anything. We owe him everything. Let's serve God as God with our whole life, in the good and the hard. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this great word. We thank you for the lesson that you taught your people Israel and even the Philistines, whether they heard it or not. We thank you that you have taught it to us and your son. That we can't just treat you as we feel like. But we need to treat you as the God that we've offended. That the ball's in your court and you have done a stunning thing. To bring relationship back. To restore us to be your children once again. Father, forgive us for treating you like an idol. Like some lucky charm. There to give us what we want. Father, help us to treat you as the great, fearful, loving God that you are, who has sent your Son to die in our place. Help us to live our life for you, serving you as our God, knowing that we owe you everything. Amen.